0: Great to see you all. I'm excited tonight to be starting a new series. Uh, It's a four week long series looking at the four Gospels. So we're going to spend one week on Matthew, one week on Mark, Luke, and then John. Not the entire Gospel in one night. Uh, We don't have enough hours for that. Uh, The reason I guess that this came about was uh, I guess in my own sort of study of Scripture and Um, questions that have come up for me, but then also questions that I I know have come up for other people as well. For instance, I had a young guy that I was helping a few years ago, trying to get him to understand what, what the Bible was all about. And he said he was keen to start reading the Bible. And he said, where should I start? And I think for many of us, we've probably been in a situation where we've either thought that ourselves, like, oh, there's 66 books in this thing. Where do I start? Or we've had someone maybe asking us that question where should i start and often we will point them to the gospel um, to one of the gospels and so this young guy that i was that i was spending some time with i said look why don't you start he he just wanted to start in in matthew he said i'm just going to start at the beginning of the new testament so he read through it and uh he had a lot to say after he'd he'd read it and he goes but before we catch up i'm just going to get into the next book i'm just i really want to read right now and about um a day later i get an inbox from him saying it's exactly the same story (laughs) And I said, well, yes and no. Um, and so we got an opportunity to talk through, because realistically we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, four accounts of the one person. And look, why do we have four though? That's the question that this guy had, and I think for many people they might ask that question. Why do we have four Gospels if they're just telling the one thing? The way that I'm going to try and answer that is by an analogy from an author named sam chan i'm going to put my own little bit of a spin on it but hopefully this will give us a little bit of um a bit of context as to the multiple gospels that we have um let's let's pretend i go home tonight and my neighbor on the left side comes over and knocks on my door and he says to me um warren we've got a we've got a situation in the bushes just across the street from us there is there is a creature that's never been seen before all right Now, at first, I'm going to be a little bit like, yep, I've got possums too. Michael, it's all right. (laughs) Um, There's probably one in our roof. I'm sure it's just a possum, all right? But then if another neighbour comes over and then another neighbour comes over and then if Julie comes over, because I'll tell you, if Julie comes over, then you know that there's definitely something going on because you never see that lady. But all of a sudden in my living room... (laughs) All of a sudden in my living room, I've got all of my neighbors coming in saying the same thing about this creature. Suddenly I go from being in this place where I was like, it's just a possum, Michael, don't worry about it, to, okay, hang on a minute, there's more validity here. There is something about this situation where there must be some truth to it. So that's one of the first things that we can think of there is that with multiple gospels comes an increase in eyewitnesses and evidence about this one person. So that's a really cool thing, to have multiple accounts. Like if we were going to all tell a story of Lemuel, maybe Lemuel did something silly on the weekend. He would never do something silly on the weekend. But if multiple people had a story, we would also have different ways in which we would speak about it from the angle in which we saw the silly story, wouldn't we? If I was standing here and I could observe um, things about Lemuel, I'm going to get a different view and have more, you know, some things to bring to the picture than, say... Um, What's somebody in the back who was just seeing the back of Lemuel? Let's be able to give some information there. So there's different angles and different perspectives that all four of our authors bring as we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to learn things about Jesus. We're going to get the same story testifying to the one Jesus that he is who he says he is, but we also get this added information and different perspective. So in sum, we've got multiple Gospels, We've got a building of evidence and credibility, a unique perspective of Jesus from each author. Each author will teach us different things to give us a fuller picture of Jesus, a broader picture, more information about Him. Tonight we're going to start with Matthew, obviously, and uh, I'm going to pray to get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the gospel accounts of Jesus. Because if Jesus is who He says He is, then that changes everything. That changes our entire life if Jesus is who he says he is. Because he is not claiming just to be a historical figure. He is not claiming just to be a teacher who has some wisdom to share and hopefully help us a little bit in our journey. But his claims are so bold. His claims are so unique about who he is that we want to know Jesus. Lord, we want to know about him. So Lord, I pray tonight as we hear this sermon, as we get into the word together, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we might be able to understand you more, that we might know and love Jesus more as a result of what we're looking at in your word. We pray this tonight in Jesus' name, amen. So the Gospel of Matthew, who do you think the author is? It's not James. It is Matthew. (laughs) Um, It is the Matthew that we find who is actually the tax collector that we read about in chapter 9. When we're thinking about um, letter writing, the recipient is a big part of this story. So, for instance, if I was um, going to write a letter, I used to do a lot of work in the youth detention centre, and if I was thinking about maybe writing a letter to those kids in the youth detention centre, they are the recipients of my letter, And there is a certain way in which I'm going to speak because of knowing that crowd, knowing that audience. There's some stuff that I understand about the kids in there that is going to make me write in such a way that I want them to understand what I'm I'm talking about. The recipients of Matthew's gospel is a mostly Jewish audience. So if you see in your Bible where it says Israelite or it says Hebrew, this is also talking about Jewish people. So sometimes, I remember years back, I got confused. I was like, hang on, which ones are the Hebrews and the Israelites? And where does the Jew? No, they're the same people group. And if we talk about the Israelites, and then we talk about in more of a modern context, we're going to use the word um, Jewish person, okay? And so Matthew writes to a mostly Jewish audience. This is important to us because these are God's chosen people that He first worked through. The ones out of all the nations that he said, these are going to be my people, whom which I am going to make myself known to the world. It was through the Jewish people. So he's writing to them. And uh, those particular things in which he writes. The purpose in which he writes is to say to them that this Jesus that we have just come to know, who came and walked this earth, who died on a cross and who resurrected, is actually the Messiah... That you were waiting for all along now i need to explain that because if you were a jewish person around the time of when jesus arrived your mindset of understanding the scriptures the way that you lived your life something that was very important to you was the reality that the scriptures tell us there is a messiah coming to save you so you were living with that it's a little bit similar for us right when we think about jesus will return So we live with an expectancy of waiting upon the return of jesus the jewish people were living their lives waiting for this messiah to come interestingly as well which we need to point out is that it was so specific as well that it wasn't just a vague kind of notion of there's a messiah coming we don't really know much about him there was actually explicit information throughout the old testament about this messiah and what, what family he would be born into. that says that he would be born into the lineage and the line of King David. King David, as, as many will know, is the, the great king of the Old Testament. Um, he is the one who took down the giant Goliath. He is the one that led the Israelite nation to victory. And it was said all throughout Scripture that this Messiah is going to come through the family line from King David. So uh, we're just going to take you through a couple of scriptures to, to show you a little bit of that. The first one I'm just going to read. The second one, if you've got a Bible or you've got your app, I'd love you to have a look with me. But this first one, I'm just going to read it. It's 2 Samuel um, 7, chapter 7, 12 to 16, is the, is the entire passage. But at the end of it, it says this. This is God speaking to King David. He is actually making a covenant with him. So he's making a promise to King David and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that obviously is not talking about David because one day David will die and he did die. But he's saying your throne will remain and be established forever. Um, If you can turn to Psalm twenty-two just a moment i'd love to have a look here and just take you through something something else that um, you may or you may not know about king david king david was a songwriter and in fact we have an entire book in our bibles called psalms that are mostly written by this king this king david is a songwriter Uh, he played mostly on the harp i believe not quite sure how you play a harp, if that's the right hand motion. Um, when, you, when you might have heard of the story about Jesus and his crucifixion, put your hand up if you know that when Jesus was crucified, his hands and his feet were pierced with giant nails. Hands up if you know that information about Jesus' crucifixion. All right. Put your hand up if you know that the soldiers who were taking him to Calvary did a thing called casting lots for his clothing. Casting lots might be the equivalent of at youth group doing rock, paper, scissors, like working out who's going to win something, right? So they cast lots. They did this process to work it out. But the soldiers, put uh, they cast lots to actually take Jesus' clothes, to say, I'm going to get his garments. Hands up if you know about that one. A few people, excellent. When you were crucified... Um, to make sure that you were dead, your bones were broken. They would come along at the end and they would break the bones of the people who were crucified just to make sure these guys are going down and can't hold themselves up. Jesus's death was unique um, in that he died and uh, they pierced his side, but he did not have any of his bones broken. Hands up if you were aware of that one. Yep, excellent. Excellent. Um, Hands up also, if you are aware, that just before Jesus died, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who knows that one? Excellent. So most people know these specific details about what happened to Jesus, right? When He went to the cross. We're going to have a look at this psalm. Now, what I want you to keep in mind is this psalm takes place, the writing of this psalm takes place long before Jesus actually comes, long before he even walks the earth and goes to the cross. Let's have a look at the first line. So picture David there with his harp doing a little bit of casual songwriting. And what is his first line of Psalm 22? He says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" So maybe you're a little bit convinced, maybe you're not. Maybe you go, "Oh, you know, maybe that's just like a Jewish phrase for when you're feeling down you you kind of cry out, "My God, why have you forsaken me?" All right, let's uh, jump over to verse 16. In verse 16, it says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What kind of song lyrics is that? They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all of my bones, meaning... None of my bones are broken. They stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is so specific. This is so specific. Here is King David sent um, to be a, a, a Christ, uh, an example of Christ who would come He is writing a song and he has just given, hundreds of years before Jesus even comes and does this stuff, he gives specific details in the scriptures of what Jesus' death would look like. Now, we don't have time to go through the Old Testament, but what I want to say to to you tonight is that from Genesis to Revelation, it is all Jesus. The whole entire book is Jesus. King David was a type of Jesus to come. Abraham, Moses, right back to um, when we're in the garden and we learn about after Satan has deceived Adam and Eve, we hear about this one, this son of man who will come and crush the serpent's head. Jesus mentioned right back in there. And you know what? I was listening to a Bible study the other other week and the guy asked the question, when is the first time in the Bible that we, we learn about Jesus? And we might go, oh... I think probably let's just go to Matthew because that's where the gospel is, right? Or maybe somebody knows about some of these things in the Old Testament, so they, maybe they go to Isaiah 9 or something like that. The reality is, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All you need to do is flip over to Colossians and you read that through Jesus, everything was created. The very first line of your Bible is Jesus. It is awesome, right from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Luke 24, Jesus is walking alongside the road with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's walking along and He tells them, everything that's been written in the Old Testament, everything in the law and the prophets, it is all about me. This is what Jesus has declared. So that's a pretty long introduction to get to Matthew, right? But how good is it that even though we we land um, in the New Testament, this entire Bible has already been about Jesus. And let's have a look at how the Gospel of Matthew starts. If you've got your Bible, let's turn. And really tonight, all we're doing is looking at the opening line. The very, very beginning. And it says this. Matthew opens his account and he says, the book... Of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So just remember again, a Jewish audience, right, waiting for this Messiah. And here comes Matthew writing to them and says, right from the get-go, right from the very first line, that this entire book, this person that I'm talking about, Jesus, is the awaited Messiah. So the main, one of the main things that Matthew in his gospel draws out is that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the promised one that they all knew was coming, but so many of them missed it. He is the one from the beginning in which they were waiting for. His opening line is almost just loaded. I remember years back when I would see a, a genealogy or a, a lineage. Ultimately, that first chapter is like a family tree, right? And... Uh, I remember the first time I read it, and it's like, you know, somebody fathered someone, Bob fathered Dave, and Dave fathered somebody else. And it kind of goes through just all these names. And in my old Bible reading, I used to just kind of like, oh, genealogy finished, I'll just start like as soon as that's over, because that has no relevance to me whatsoever. That's what I thought. But when I look at this entire genealogy... This is, the, in, this is the Old Testament. This is the, the major players, the characters of the Old Testament, the people who, um, from which Jesus would come, the entire bloodline through which Jesus came. When I look at some of the names that, that stand out to me in there, I see the name Ruth, for instance. And I think of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we've got uh, four chapters of the book of Ruth. This sort of strange story that turns up, it's ultimately like a love story. In the middle of like war and bloodshed, we've got like, you know, the king's, slaughtering entire nations. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the Old Testament, up pops the book of Ruth. And it tells this beautiful love story of what's tragic at the beginning because these two women become widows. But then there is this kinsman redeemer who comes and shows kindness. And the kinsman redeemer is a type of Christ to come yet again. So all the way through this genealogy, we see that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah, who was always going to come. He is the one that they are awaiting. But the question that we ask now is, when we think about Jesus being this, um, being the Messiah and the Savior that we call him, it's, it's true for us as well. When we think about maybe somebody sharing Jesus in our world right now, people do one or two things when they hear about Jesus. Either they reject him, Their hearts become hardened and they turn away and they say, I don't want to hear about your Jesus. Or their hearts begin to be troubled in a good way. They start to go, hang on, what is it about this Jesus? Maybe I need to know more about this Jesus. And what actually happens is their hearts melt. The hardness, their eyes begin to become opened and that they can open a a Bible and now actually understand who God is. The question for us is as we meet this Messiah, as he is proclaimed to us, what are we going to be like? Are we going to be one who hears this proclamation of him and goes, No, thank you. I'm waiting for something else, something better? Or are we going to say, Yes, he is truly the Messiah? Because here comes Jesus performing miracles, and he speaks as one who has authority. He even reads in, in the synagogue, which is like church in Jesus' day. Um, he he goes over, he was allowed to, to speak, and he goes over and, and takes out one of the ancient scrolls, starts reading from the scroll one of the prophecies that was about him, and says to them, Today, in your presence, this scripture has been fulfilled. That's a mic drop moment right there. Here are these Jewish, here's this Jewish audience still waiting for this Messiah. And this guy all of a sudden steps up in the meeting, reads this thing out and goes, oh yeah, I'm him. I'm the guy you've been waiting for. Imagine how, how uh, people must have been responding. No matter, No wonder how many, there was just giant crowds of people circulating and getting around Jesus to truly find out, is he really him? Is it really the Messiah that we've been waiting for? The reaction... That Jesus gets is uh, very interesting we live in a world right now where everybody wants to kind of like say that everybody's okay with their own belief they want to say that hey if that's true for you that's good but that's not necessarily true for me That is such a lie (laughs) there are universal truths that apply to every single person and when Jesus came along he didn't say Let's all just get along. He didn't just come along and say, look, bring all your different beliefs and we'll all just have a big garden party and it'll be lovely. Jesus came along and said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The news of Jesus actually does divide people because are they going to follow him or are they going to reject him? The other thing about the way that Jesus came is that he really, really messed with people's heads in regards to what they were expecting this Messiah to be like. So, for instance, um, let's say if we were going to, I don't know, maybe you go to a, a show or a, a movie or something like that, you have certain expectations of what you think this thing's going to be like. And I think for many of these Jewish people, when they saw Jesus, they were confused because they thought he was going to be very different than what he actually was. They actually thought, for, many, for most of the Jewish people, they thought that Jesus was going to come along with a sword in hand and crush their enemies in the same way that God had brought judgment upon some nations through the leadership of Joshua. So when they were expecting a Messiah, they were expecting this one who would come and just completely obliterate their enemies and just make them the awesome people of the world again. But here comes Jesus. He turns up with these radical teachings, never breaking God's laws, but building upon God's laws, adding to God's laws. And he says things like, Love your enemies. Hang on a minute. I thought we were going to like slaughter them. He says, Turn the other cheek. Wait a minute. I'm a, I'm a prideful nation. We, we're a prideful nation. We, turn the other cheek. Love my enemies. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus does to our religious mindsets. And when I say religious mindset, I mean the way in which we can become a type of people who cares more about structure and rules and keeping things nice the way that we want them. I remember a lecturer that I had at college, and he was talking about a time when he went to become um, the senior pastor of Um, a very long-established church in Brisbane. Um, And when he went there, what he encountered was a group of people who really didn't want to change. They wanted the pastor just to come in and just do it the way that they wanted. And what he said to us as he was sharing, he talked about the fact that the longer a church exists, the more and more it has the the risk of becoming inward-focused, meaning that we can actually just be concerned with keeping this nice, as opposed to the Great Commission which says, get this message, this gospel, out into the world around us. And that's what he encountered there. He encountered many church members who just wanted him to play the game and keep it nice for them. They weren't concerned about the lost souls that didn't know about Jesus on the outside of their walls. And he began to just do things differently. At no point could they have said that he was in error of Scripture, but I remember one story that he was sharing with us about um, children who were kind of wanted, they wanted to keep them really, really quiet in the service. And these children came running around the corner, and some of the church members were ready to, to sort of pounce and uh, arouse on the kids. The pastor's wife came running around with them, and she was play, playing and having this, this fun time with them. And it really did challenge the mindsets that were going on in this place. And so it is with Jesus when he comes. He does not break God's law, but he is always doing, God is always doing a new thing. And when Jesus came, it was so unique in the way that he came with his message of love your your enemies or the fact that he has fulfilled all of the law, but then adds to the law, takes it up a notch as well. And what did Jesus say? We read in Matthew 5, verse 17, it says that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. So, all that happened in the Old Testament, Jesus is not saying, I didn't come to do away with that, I didn't come to abolish that, but He says that I have come to fulfill them. So, everything that's already been written, Jesus fulfills everything of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Yeah, here He was and people were divided. Is He the Messiah? Nobody could ever live by the law of God perfectly. There is not one person in this room who could live by the law of God perfectly. We only need to take a look at the Ten Commandments and we start to see very, very quickly how much we need a Saviour. Jesus lived the law perfectly, yet He went and He died a sinner's death on a cross. Jesus destroys the power of sin and darkness Jesus destroys the power of evil when, even though he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross for us, for all those who would call upon the name of the Lord. So I want to ask the question tonight Is Jesus your Messiah? That's not, you don't have to yell that out, your answer, but for you to ponder. Is Jesus really your Messiah? We could be like the Jewish people and have an idea about who we want God to be and completely miss it. We could have the reality going on that we like coming here, we've got a few friends and it's kind of cool. But is Jesus our Messiah? Is He your Messiah? Or are you planning to just keep making up your own way in life, your own ideas, your own truths have you come to the place where you've come to jesus for the forgiveness of your sins the reality for all of us is that there is a day coming when we are going to stand before the god of the universe i don't even know why people would be talking in in the middle of something like this we are going to stand before god and give an account for our life. I preach because I care about your soul. What I don't really care about is whether you make it in a good career or not. I hope that you have a fruitful life in that kind of sense. I hope that your life is healthy and is lived well. But I care about the day when you stand before God, Because on that day, you are going to go to one or two places. You were going to go to heaven and you were going to reign with Jesus forever. Or you were going to go to hell. And I say that to you trembling. I want you to know Jesus as your Messiah. He came for you. He calls you to himself. The good news about... The good news is that salvation is for all who would believe it's for those who would call upon the name of the lord and say you know what i have come to the end of myself i can't do it some of us live our life going i've got it sorted and it's like we're grabbing water and going yep i can keep this water in my hands forever but that water keeps draining out of our fingers we cannot hang on to it that is what your life is like without jesus there is an opportunity for you tonight to know jesus as your lord and savior not just to know about him but to come to the cross and to say you know what i have made a mess i need to repent which means to turn from myself to the god of the universe So I've got three things I want to finish on for you tonight. There is an application for us that just because Jesus was the Messiah for the Jewish people, there are three things for us. Well, actually, there's four. There's the one I just talked about, that Jesus is your Messiah. Here's the first one. When we think about this story that we've just unraveled right from the beginning of Genesis, we're actually saying that we have this massive story that is existing. God is doing His thing, regardless of us or not. God is the universe of everything. Uh, the universe. He is the God of all of the universe and everything that exists. It's all His, and it is all His story. We can ignore that and, as I said, try and hold that water in our hands or, or try and create our own little bit of awesomeness. But the good news is that there's already a massive, awesome story, which is God's story, that is happening right now. And you get to be a part of it. So you don't have to try and figure things out. You don't have to go and worry about your life and stress and go, how can I be awesome? How can I just get my life to be a little bit more awesome? No, no. There's already an awesome story that God calls you to be a part of. When I look around this room, there are, there are people, I see them, and they are my brothers and my sisters in the same story. My brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are together in God's bigger picture. We get to be included in this awesome and wonderful story. How good is that? You don't have to be the awesome one. That is such a relief. That is such a relief. I've spoken on this before, but having come through the whole music industry thing, hanging around um, an industry that continues to tell you you're nothing if you don't get the next thing out there, get the next album or the next... Keep everybody, you know, following you, following you. It's tiring, man. People only like you as long as you are able to keep dropping another song or another such and such, whatever it is that's keeping you your name in the public eye. You don't need to have your name in the public eye. Jesus' name is the one for the public eye. He is the awesome one. And we get to be united with His beautiful and already awesome story number two the fact that jesus is the messiah from matthew says to you that god is a god that you can trust he is a god who is a promise keeper if we think about the old testament this much of the bible being promises of god every single one of them was fulfilled in jesus He didn't just get a couple of them right and skip over the rest. God came through with every single one of His promises, which means that if you transfer your trust from your own life to Jesus, those promises belong to you. The Scriptures say that every promise of God gets its yes, gets its amen in Jesus. The promises are all in here of a faithful God that you can trust. what I will say about trusting God is that there is definitely a process in that. I've got something going on in my life at the moment where I feel like God has brought an answer to a situation that I've been praying about. And what I noticed in myself was that here was this good news of God and I could totally see Him at work in the situation and my heart became rested and easy as I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. But you know what I did like the next day? I went from, oh, praise God, thank you, this is so awesome too. But what about if this happens? What about if that goes wrong? What about? And I just started to move straight back into the place of not trusting God. One day, he turned up and he said to me, Warren, it's alright. I've got this. And there I was the very next day. Man, I need the help of, of the Holy Spirit. I need the help of my brothers and sisters to continue forward to grow in my trust of God. Maybe that's for somebody else here tonight as well. You know that Learning to trust God is a process. It's a lifelong process as well. But remember, He is a trustworthy God. Continue to come to Him with everything. The third one, the final one. In the same way that Jesus fulfilled things, yet did it differently than what the Jews expected, maybe maybe the way that God answers you in your life is going to be different than the idea that you have in your head about God. Does that make sense? So we might have an idea about how we think God should answer us in the same way that the Jewish people had the idea about what the Messiah should look like. But perhaps in our growing in trust, we also need to be prepared and understand that God will answer in His own way to us because He knows the plans that He has for you. Because He knows what we need. We can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we look at the scriptures tonight, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, I thank you, Lord, that we see a God who we can trust, a God who has promised to send Jesus, who came through with every single one of those promises, every single prophecy fulfilled. Lord, as we look at this tonight, I pray that you might speak to our hearts individually. I pray that we might even ask the question, is Jesus our Messiah? Because I thank you, Lord, that when Jesus went to that cross, it wasn't just for Jewish people. It was actually for all nations, people of all nations. And the story of Jesus is every bit as relevant for us today as what it was for the Jewish people that Matthew was writing to. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And I pray, Father, that you would grow a trust in us that builds a solid rock under our feet. That no matter what situation we are facing right now, Lord, we can continue to cast our burdens upon you, knowing that it is you who sustains us. I Thank you for your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen.